You may be seated. It's good to be back with you from six weeks of medical leave. I might sound a little nosy in the best sort of way. I still have a little congestion in my sinuses from the surgery, but for the most part, all of that's behind me. I'm feeling good, have lots of energy, and ready to be back at work here at the church. I want to say thank you to all of our staff here at First Tree Methodist Church, especially to Pastor Camille, who held all of the work of the church during these last six weeks. And so I think it's appropriate for all of y'all to thank them. I'm also thankful for those who filled in in the pulpit in the weeks I was away. Uh, Bonnie Brand, who's here this morning. I see Celeste Cranston here this morning. Uh, Brian Lujioyo, if you're here, you need to wave your hands because I don't see you. But anyways, he's around. And then, of course, Pastor Camille. And then last week, you had such a great message, didn't you? By uh, Pastor Hanny and hearing about some of the work he's been doing. And those of you who were able to attend afterwards in the Fine Center got to hear even more details about his ongoing mission work on behalf of the Free Methodist Church. So it's been a good six weeks. I've watched every week online, even on the very first Sunday after my surgery. Uh, Jade will tell you I was texting her about... The camera, I don't see the lyrics. The lighting isn't right. And so I'm just a grouser even while I'm at home. And so I'm thankful for that. We're beginning a new series today in Lent. And this series for Lent is called Practice Makes Possible. And in this series, we're exploring the means of grace. In this case, it's the means of grace that Jesus himself gave us. Now, these aren't the formal means of grace like the sacraments we talk about specifically, although we're including them. But we're talking about a lot of other means of grace, about how Jesus instructed the disciples to practice certain things that would draw them deeper into the life of the Spirit. And so today, of course, we're going to be talking about prayer. There are two series that go together. This series before Easter called Practice Makes Possible. And then we're going to have another series right after Easter called The Art of Holy Living, which is the companion series to this one. And in that series that happens after Easter, we're going to be looking at all of the extraordinary ways we encounter the grace of God in everyday life, in nature, in relationships, in the people that we connect with. And I'm excited about that series after Easter. We'll be sharing that with uh, Dr. Douglas Strong, and it's going to go together with the Walls Lecture that Doug will be giving this coming April about the art of holy living and the, and the notion of Methodist idea of what the sacraments are, that the sacraments are all around us, that God is speaking in all these different ways. And so I'm looking forward to sharing a sermon in the spring with uh, Doug Strong, and Doug is going to be preaching in May as well as a part of that whole series. So it's an exciting time after Easter. So all that's to say is that what we're doing now goes together with what we're doing then, now and then. Got it? All right. Now I got it. So let's pause just for a moment this morning before we begin, and I just want you to have 30 seconds of silence.
Amen. 30 seconds of silence is good for the soul. Allows us to sit just for a moment and hear how God is moving in us to quiet ourselves. We're going to practice the silence every week, uh, right before the beginning of the actual sermon, just to center ourselves and prepare to hear what God might be speaking to us. Today is about prayer and about how we experience the grace of God in prayer. And so when I was thinking about the sermon weeks and months ago, I was wondering about all of these different texts where Jesus explains prayer to us or maybe some other uh, way in which prayer is taught to us. And the more I thought about it, the more I kept leaning into, why don't we look at a prayer Jesus prays? And that's John 17. This passage of scripture is a prayer that Jesus is praying. So perhaps we might learn something about prayer by looking at how Jesus prays when he's praying. And in this case, he's praying on the very night before his betrayal, his crucifixion, and his death. This prayer in John 17 is just a portion that we had read this morning that Nolan shared with us, part of a larger prayer that's in the same context of Jesus just hours before his death, praying and pouring his heart out before the Lord, and what we can learn about prayer by listening to Jesus pray. Now, one of the first things I think we hear when we listen to Jesus pray is, a prayer for joy. A prayer for joy. Listen to what Jesus says in John seventeen thirteen. It was the very first verse we heard read. It says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. You know, the Apostle Paul, likewise, encourages us in his letter to the Thessalonians to rejoice always. That seems difficult, doesn't it? Rejoice always, really? But note how Jesus speaks in this passage of Scripture in verse 13. But now I am coming to you. So let's get our pronouns figured out here. The I in the the phrase is Jesus. The you he's speaking of is the Father. So as Jesus is praying, he says, now I am coming to you. And the, the framing of his death is right in front of him. And that he knows it's through his death that he will come to God. And this is where we begin to understand the most fundamental essence of what joy is about. It's not a matter of taking a situation in our life and trying to spin it into happiness. Because happiness and joy are two different things. And it's quite possible and is usually possible to experience joy in your most unhappy moment, in your most difficult time, as you face sickness or a death, broken relationships, whatever they may be, it's at those moments at which we're least happy that God can bring a sense of joy to us. Well, how is it that we get joy in those moments? How can we hold on to some joyfulness and how can we pray for joy even in those difficult times. Well, let's listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Jesus's life in slightly more detail. He says, looking at Jesus, that's who we're supposed to look at, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see the word joy hiding out in there? Look for it. Who for the joy set before him. What was before him? What was before him was resurrection, 
life with the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father. All of these things were before him. So as he looks past the current situation to the outcome, there's a deep sense of joy that comes. So let me frame this a little bit in uh, somewhat of my own story. I turned 56 a week and a half ago. And so um, I have to tell you, my 50s have not been good to me. <laughs> they have not been good. Uh, when I turned 50, not too long thereafter, I had a gallbladder attack. I had to have my gallbladder removed. It was gangrenous. I don't need to get into more details on that, but I almost died. About 18 months later, I was with Bettina. We went to France for a wonderful trip we'd planned for a long time. I got a very bad viral infection while I was in France, my last night in Paris. I was sick for the remaining five or six days of our trip. I came home, so I got on an airplane for a 10-hour airplane flight while I had a virus. So I got a blood clot that became a pulmonary embolism, and I almost died. Round two. Now, I have found that I've had to have a tumor removed from my pituitary gland through my nose. Now, when I had my pulmonary embolism and when I had my gallbladder attack, I had very little time to sit with those things. It's like you're in the hospital and stuff's happening, you have a gallbladder problem, boom, boom, I'm in surgery that night, it's over. There, you don't have a lot of time to sit with it. I found out in October I was going to have to have brain surgery. So I had three months to sit with it. Three months. Kind of closing your eyes and wondering what it's like to... I don't even... Yeah. What happened in me, though, was this... Um, it revealed kind of this deep sense of anxiety I had, worry. There were times that even manifested itself in panic. I was at the dentist's office in November to have a cavity filled, and I was sitting in the dentist chair, and the dentist was getting ready to start and getting ready to give me the shot of Novocaine. And just the sense of being set in a chair that I can't get up from and I can't move and somebody sticking sharp things in my face... That was it. I got up out of the chair. I said, I can't do this. And I left and I had to come back. Those three months taught me some important things about myself. Number one, I have not surrendered my life to God as fully as I need to. It taught me that I have a struggle with anxiety, which I've had for a long time, but that I need to reckon with that and work on it. It helped me realize in some ways that, that I was experiencing an expression of my own sinfulness from the standpoint that I was not capable of trusting God with the outcome of whatever happened in my body. So over those three months, I went through that experience, and on December 31st, I stood about here. And everyone in the church came up here and prayed over me before I went to the hospital. If you were near me, you knew I was practically weeping because I had no idea how to hold what was happening. So I went into the hospital, had the surgery, lasted an hour, came out in recovery, and when I woke up in recovery, I felt great. Well, that could have been drugs, who knows. <laughs> I felt great. From that point on, I didn't have any pain. I had all these painkillers, I never took them. And what I found is as I began to reckon with the fact that I had not surrendered this body to God, in other words, surrender the outcome to God in a way that made sense, I was going to continue to carry around all that anxiety and worry and burden. As soon as that surgery was over, I was able to hand that over to God. 
in Thanksgiving. And there hasn't been a day since I've woke up, woken up anxious, in a flurry of panic. I haven't woken up and spent any time in any day filled with a sense of dread. God healed me with joy. And not just the thing growing on my pituitary gland. The more important healing God began to do in me is in my heart, in my life. And so for that, I give thanks. To put it in the vernacular, I like to say, my 50s have sucked. But no matter what happens in my 50s or my 60s or my 70s, what I'm beginning to understand is that God has me. That's the beginning in some way about how we pray for joy. That's at least what I'm learning about it. You see, the joy of Jesus is being in perfect harmony in his relationship with the Father. And that's the primary and dominant factor of this story. You know, when we pray for other people, oftentimes we pray for them in disembodied ways. And what I mean by that is we pray about the situation they're in instead of the person in the situation. So we pray about the cancer. We pray about the illness. We pray about the financial situation. We pray about the relationship. And what happens oftentimes when we do that, while we're carrying those burdens for people, if we know the struggle that they're in, sometimes we're forgetting the fact that God is at work in that person's life in the situation they're in to bring about an outcome. And oftentimes that outcome is so awesome that it almost looks like God sent the situation to begin with. That's the Methodist wag of the finger at you. God redeems our pain. And that's where the joy flows from. The joy comes from a sense of the knowledge that God has it, has us, has one another. And so when we pray for people and we lift up our prayers to them, we pray for them for joy that they might experience perfect relationship with Jesus Christ, that they might live in perfect surrender to him, that they might know fully his love and grace in their life that leads them not only in this moment but to eternity. It doesn't mean we ignore their situation or circumstance. It means that we begin to hold the outcome, not the moment that they're in. So it boils down to this in some ways. Praying for joy draws us to the perfect outcome, not the imperfect situation. Praying for joy draws us to the perfect outcome, not the imperfect situation. So some questions for you to think about this week. I printed them in your bulletin today is, how is, are your prayers centered in joy instead of situations? Consider a person you're praying for today. What would a prayer for joy be for them? And how are you experiencing joy today? And what needs to change in your prayers to experience more of it? Remember, prayer, does not, prayer of joy does not mean you're oblivious to circumstance or situation. It means that you hold that circumstance and situation, praying for God's perfect love to be revealed and known in a person or a group's life, even in the midst of that. That's joy. Well, Jesus keeps praying. And he prays second for unity. Now, unity is hard for us to hold in this polarized world. And I'll get to the verse where he prays for unity in a minute. But how do we pray for unity and oneness? It seems like everyone's colored red or blue these days. Sometimes purple. 
the political divide that affects us as a culture has bled into the life of the church. Now, in my opinion, and, and, and this is not, remember, I'm not pontificating, I'm just preaching a sermon. In my opinion, this is the greatest attack Satan has ever unleashed on the church in America in the 250 to 300 years. Is baiting us into being so divided with one another and using our Christian faith to antagonize us with one another so that we find ourselves in two different camps. Liberal progressives over here in the church and conservative evangelicals over here in the church. What an evil has been done to us and what an evil we continue to practice. And what happens is there's all sorts of collateral damage. I mean, we could go back in time just a little ways and decide whether or not church services should be held in Latin or in the common tongue. That was a big fight, you know that. It was also a fight whether or not you could wear jeans to church or a suit. I got both of those. It was a fight in a church whether you wanted modern or traditional music. The music was the poster child of that discussion. Right now, it's people in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community that are just getting pelted by both groups as they fight away. Now, it's okay to have positions, it's okay to have postures, it's okay to have those things, but we have to remember there's people, human beings, in the middle of all that, of sacred value to God. And while they're watching us argue about things, they are just getting beaten to death by it. So much to the point they want nothing to do with us. This is hard stuff for us to work through. So how do we pray for unity in all of this? Jesus prays in this text this. He says that they may all be one, just as you, and, just as you Father, are in me and I in you. That's a tall order. So our churches break down along the same side of, laying the same lines as our culture. We're broken along lines of practice, theology, and politics. So how is it we pull this off? That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Well, how do you suppose Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus? Because they're both red, both blue. What makes oneness? friends. It's relationship that makes oneness. That Jesus and the Father are in perfect relationship together, perfect community together, inseparable in the nature of the triune God. The focus is on the relationship, it's on the person of Jesus. So our unity comes from seeking to be with and for Jesus. So praying for unity is not a prayer that we all think about everything exactly alike, that we all agree with each other. I know this is going to be hard for you to hear as Methodists, but the founder of our movement, John Wesley, wrote a very famous sermon about this very topic called A Catholic Spirit. And there's a section of that sermon I want to read to you. It seems so appropriate today. It's striking to me. Wesley writes, but although a difference in opinions or modes of worship may prevent an entire external union, yet need it prevent our union and affection? Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart. 
though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. Herein all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. These remain as they are. They may forward one another in love and good works. Famous quote by Wesley is embedded in the middle of that. Though we may not think alike, may not we love alike. His brother Charles was a hymn writer. So for those of you who are of the melodic mind, what Charles writes in his hymn, Catholic Love, might make more sense. He writes, Forth from the midst of Babel brought, parties and sects I cast behind. Enlarge my heart and free my thought, where the latent truth I find. The latent truth with joy to own and bow to Jesus' name alone. There's a way in which we have to understand ourselves as a Christian community that we're all not going to agree on stuff all the time. We're not going to agree theologically, we're not going to agree biblically, and that's okay. What matters for us is even if we don't think alike or have the same opinions about things, that we are united around the singularity of Jesus Christ. That as Jesus and the Father are one, so we are called to be one. One in relationship. A church is not a gathering of ideologues. Rewind, repeat. The church is not a gathering of ideologues. The church is a gathering of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ above anything or anyone else in all the world. And they will do everything they can to convey that love of Jesus to the world around them. We believe that so deeply we put it in our vision statement. Love people. Connect to Jesus. Serve the world. So what we must learn how to do is pray to unite around the person of Jesus not what we think Jesus wants done. Some questions you might want to wonder about this week is how are we praying for unity of our heart with Jesus and how are we doing that for others? How suited are you to be in community with those with whom you disagree? It's very quiet in here. Praying for unity means unifying around Jesus. Unifying around Jesus. Praying for joy. Now, the last thing I'm going to talk about very, very briefly, but it's important, is to pray for God's mission as well. Pray for God's mission. Jesus talks about it in John 17, verse 23, when he's praying. He says, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them just as you loved me. So according to what Jesus is praying here, our work is to be perfected through, again, Methodist word, sanctification, so that we can be one with Jesus so the world will know that Jesus was sent as an act of love from God. In other words, everyone in the world is supposed to know about the love of God through our representation of being in love with God. How's that working for us? You see, for us as followers of Jesus, our deep and lasting investment has to be in deepening the love relationship with Jesus Christ. In every context, in every way we can do that. Through the reading of Scripture, through prayer, through being in small groups together, being in community, being on one-on-one -on -one relationships, it doesn't matter. That's the focus of our life, is being one with Jesus Christ. 
and going deeper with him all the time. This entire series through Lent is designed to give us some tools about how to do that. And that's our mission. Our mission is incidental and accidental. That means as we live as the radical followers of Jesus in the world, someone on some day at some time will look at you and say, why do you do that? And then what do you get to tell them? Go ahead. What are you going to tell them? Why are you so generous? Why do you spend time with me? You see how it works? We live lives of such deep love with Jesus that as we're circulating around in the world, people look at us and say, what's your deal? And we go, oh, I'd love to tell you about my deal. His name is Jesus. Wouldn't you like to know him? That's what it's like. Like you saw a good football game. Like you saw a good movie. Like you experienced anything else in your life that was transforming and powerful. You feel a need to share it with people. So that's our work. To have such a deep and provocative experience with Jesus. So much that it can't stop but coming out from us wherever we are. That's how the mission works. It's not a matter of knowing enough. Thank God. Not a matter of doing enough. Thank God. It's not even a matter of feeling enough. Thank God. Praying for the church's mission puts a deeper relationship with Jesus at the center. Throughout Lent, we have a variety of practices that are designed to help bring you deeper to Jesus. We've been communicating with you throughout the week on email and on our website about our Lenten devotional guide you can use during Lent to spend time with Jesus every day, reflecting on prayers and poems and other ways of thinking and wondering about Jesus. We sent that to you digitally this week. We also have some hard copies available in the narthex. We also would love to receive a $10 donation for the hard copies. They're not cheap. But the digital one is free. We also have a book in the foyer as well that has how we can be in prayer for 40 days with Pray Seattle. Pastor Camille told you about the midweek prayer that's going on in the Demeray Chapel from Wednesday from 12 to 2 when you can come and go as you please to spend a few moments in prayer. We shared with you about the Wesley Fast, which is a, a, a version of John Wesley's fast that he kept from sundown on Thursday until 3 p.m. on Friday, in which you might give something up or take something on in your life to be mindful of God's work in your life. All of these are ways that we hope you will find deeper connection to Jesus, including setting an alarm on your phone for 1224 every day to pause for a moment of prayer. If you haven't done that yet, you can get your phone out and do it now while I finish the sermon. 1224 every day to pause and pray. This table that's set before us is supposed to be... um, food to feed us for that journey. It's a great irony. It comes to us in such small portions. That's part of our radical proclamation. You just need a little bit of Jesus (laughs) and everything begins to happen and begins to move. So my friends, if you're a person today who needs some joy, pray for a heart that accepts that God's love is always with you no matter what. 
Do you need a little bit more unity in your life? Pray for a life-seeking Jesus, no matter how that might change you. Do you need a mission? Pray for a space to share how you're becoming more like Jesus. Will you pray with me? We God, thank you for this table that you've set for us. The table of grace and love. A table of unconditional acceptance and complete transformation. You receive us as we are, but are not content to leave us as we are. So we're thankful for Jesus who gave us the example in his life, death, and resurrection and how the night he gave himself up for us, he took bread and after he had given thanks, he gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, the Lord Jesus took the cup and after he gave thanks to you, he gave it to the disciples saying, take, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins and my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so God, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Feed us at this table today, O God, and strengthen us for the work that we do. For we do it in your name as you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.